I got to be honest, I got to calm down a little bit. <laughs> uh, we have a lot to cover today. Just kidding. These are, all, these are all Kevin's sermon notes for the series. I don't know why they're in my folder, but they're there. This is what we have to talk about today. Um, I am excited to be here with you today. Um, this week is basically a continuation of what we've been talking about in the book of Acts. In fact, in the way we lay this out, last week was part one and this week is part two kind of of this section. So I want to recap just a little bit about what Tom um, talked to us about last week. So Paul has heard the concerns of those who love him that said, please don't go to Jerusalem. Bad things are going to happen to you there. Um, and Paul, or Paul says, I understand that and I'm going anyway because he was resolute on getting to Rome. And he knew he had to go through Jerusalem to get there. So he made that decision. He went and yes, in fact, as the Spirit had warned him and others, some bad things started happening, including... Um, Kind of the same old, same old that has been happening through the book of Acts to the church. And that is that the Jewish establishment is trying to hold him up and stop um, this new way um, from spreading. So last week, talk, talk, Tom talked to us about um, sort of Paul's shift in this section. Before he made no, um, he had no problem going up against the Jews. He understood them fully because he, had, he was one. He understood it and he knew where they were coming from. He had no problem um, sort of arguing and trying to help them see. But we saw last week that when he gets back to Jerusalem, even those um, who had become believers in Jesus, so um, it was James and some of the followers like that, they were kind of like... Um, Paul, we still want you to do these Jewish things. And instead of coming against them and explaining again why he didn't think that was necessary, he went ahead and submitted to them. Um, then, in, then Tom talked to us. Um, the question he asked us was, who are we willing to become? Because that was what Paul um, reminded us, that to the Jews he became like a Jew. To the Gentiles, he became like the Gentiles. And his purpose was so that he could have opportunity to share the good news of this new way with them. So the question Tom asked us was, who are we willing to become? And then he also asked us the question, what are we resolute about? Because really, the reason Paul was willing to do that was because he was resolute to get to Rome. And he couldn't be held up in Jerusalem anymore. So that brings us to where we are today. Um, the Jews were ready to kill Paul. The Romans were like, time out, you can't kill anybody without our say-so. So they step in, and it's unclear what their problem with Paul is. So Rome the Roman soldiers, actually sort of take Paul into their protection until they can figure out what's going on. And that's kind of where we pick up the story today. So if you need a Bible, they're in the back. Uh, feel free to grab one. We're going to start in Acts 22, verse 30. Give you a second. 
The next day, since the commander wanted to find out exactly why Paul was being accused by the Jews, he released him and ordered the chief priests and all the Sanhedrin to assemble. Then he brought Paul and had him stand before them. Paul looked straight at the Sanhedrin and said, My brothers, I have fulfilled my duty to God in all good conscience to this day. As at this, the high priest Ananias ordered those standing near Paul to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. You sit there to judge me according to the law, yet you yourself violate the law by commanding that I be struck. Those who were standing near Paul said, You dare insult God's high priest. And Paul replied, Brothers, I did not realize that he was the high priest, for it is written, Do not speak evil about the ruler of your people. Then Paul, knowing that some of them were Sadducees and the others Pharisees, called out to the Sanhedrin, My brothers, I'm a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee. I stand on trial because my hope is in the resurrection of the dead. Side note, that's not why he's on trial. Um, and then I lost my place. The... Seven, when he said this, a dispute broke out between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. The Sadducees say that there is no resurrection and that there are neither angels nor spirits, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. There was a great uproar, and some of the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, stood up and argued vigorously. We find nothing wrong with this man, they said. Well, what if a spirit of an angel had spoken to him? The dispute became so violent that the commander the Roman commander, was afraid Paul might be torn to pieces by them. He ordered the troops to go down and take him away and take him away from them by force and bring him to the barracks. The following night, the Lord stood near Paul and said, Take courage. As you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. The next morning, the Jews formed a conspiracy and bound themselves with an oath not to eat or drink until they had killed Paul. More than 40 men were involved in this plot. They went to the chief priests and elders and said, we have taken a solemn oath not to eat anything until we have killed Paul. Now then, you and the Sanhedrin petition the commander to bring him before you on the pretext of wanting more accurate information about his case. We're ready to kill him before he gets here. But when the son of Paul's sister heard of his plot. He went into the barracks and told Paul. Then Paul called one of the centurions, Roman centurions, and said, take this young man to the commander. He has something to tell him. So he took him to the commander. The centurion said, Paul the prisoner sent for me and asked me to bring this young man to you because he has something to tell you. The commander took the young man by the hand, drew him aside and said, what is it you want to tell me? He said, the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul before the Sanhedrin tomorrow on the pretext of wanting more accurate information about him. Don't give in to them because more than 40 of them are waiting to ambush him. They have taken an oath not to eat or drink until they've killed him. They're ready now, waiting for your consent to their request. The commander dismissed the young man and cautioned him, don't tell anyone that you've reported this to me. Then he called two of his centurions and ordered them, get ready a detachment of 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, and 200 spearmen to go to Caesarea at nine tonight. 
provide mounts for Paul so that he may be taken safely to Governor Felix. He wrote a letter as follows. Claudius Lysias, to His Excellency Governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews, and they were about to kill him, but I came with my troops and rescued him, for I had learned that he is a Roman citizen. I wanted to know why the, what they were accusing, uh, why they were accusing him, so I brought him to their Sanhedrin. I found that the accusation had to do with questions about their law, but there was no charge against him that deserved death or imprisonment. When I was informed of a plot to be carried out against the man, I sent him to you at once. I also ordered his accusers to present to you to present their case against him. Present to you their case against him. So the soldiers, carrying out their orders, took Paul with them during the night and brought him as far as Antipatris. The next day, they let the cavalry go on with him while they returned to the barracks. When the cavalry, cavalry arrived in Caesarea, they delivered the letter to the governor and handed Paul over to him. The governor read the letter and asked what province he was from. Learning that he was from Caesarea, he said, I will hear your case when your accusers get here. Then he ordered that Paul be kept under guard in Herod's palace. People of God, this is the word of God. This is seriously like a movie. And some of you watched that movie last night. Um, so as I was reading this, one thing that sort of has been coming up for me as we've been reading this story and has been intensifying just like I couldn't take it anymore. And that is the fact that I get so frustrated with the people of God in the book of Acts. Because if I'm honest, they're the bad guys. Why do they keep being the bad guys? I don't want them to be the bad guys. I'm waiting for them to make a better choice. And they don't. And so, this led me to dig into it a little bit, and I'm going to do that with you this morning. And I'm going to put on a little bit different hat than I'm used to, and that's my teacher hat from years ago. I'm getting a whiteboard, people. It might be helpful if this was on a slide, but it's not. So, the great thing about being at one service is after I write it, I'll leave it up here, and you can come look at it later. I don't have to erase it. Okay. Don't judge my ability to draw straight lines either. I did my best. All right. So this led me to kind of think, I wanted to understand the people of God in the book of Acts. Because I'm a person of God. Right? I'm a child of God. And I wanted to see where I would have fit into this story. Because the truth is, studying Acts isn't going to do us any good if it's just a story of history. One of Scripture's benefits to us is that it's a mirror that we can find ourselves in. So in an effort to find myself, I needed to look at these people a little more closely. So, 
I, in an effort to speed this along, I'm going to do not what a good teacher would do and let you discover this on your own, but I'm just going to show you a little bit of what I discovered, okay? So, go with me. I, would this be easier if it was up there? Okay, can someone help me carry this up? Look at all of you! Thank you. All the way up. This is like for real teacher now. Okay, back farther. Can you guys see it over there? Okay. Okay, are we good? All right, if you're a note taker, today is gonna be awesome. Okay, so I divided the people of God into four categories, all right? And here's what they were. These first guys over here, I know I'm going to have to write small and I'm sorry. Well, I'll tell you what I'm writing, okay? Is I'm calling them the Jewish establishment. So these are the Pharisees and the Sadducees and all the other ones who are in sort of the structured institutional church. We, we know that through the Old Testament, they, God calls them his people. They are the people of God, Right? That doesn't change. The Jewish people are still the people of God, right? Okay, so we have them. Then we have the Jewish believers. I always spell believe wrong, but I did spell check when I was writing this, so. Okay, we have the Jewish believers. These are the people of God who have followed his ways and have now come to believe that Jesus was Messiah, okay? Um, then I'm putting into a new category, Paul and Gentile believers. Now the truth is that Paul is also in this category, right? Because he was a Jew and he is a believer. But I'm putting him in a new category and I think you'll find, you'll see why. And then this last category We're going to say that it's in our in our particular it's Rome, the Romans, it's the rest, and some of you might say oh, they're not the people of God. So they don't. But are we not all the people of God? Some of us have yet to meet Him. Some of us have yet to accept Him. But are we not all the people of God? That's why I'm including them in this. Okay, okay. So now we're going to go down, and we're going to just sort of compare them. So who do they sort of, uh, for lack of a better term, who do they worship? Who do they believe in? So the Jewish establishment is strictly focused on Yahweh God, the God of the Old Testament, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That is, when we talk about God, that is who we are talking about, okay? Um, the Jewish believers still recognize their relationship as the people of God and Yahweh. They also recognize that the, 
promised Messiah was Jesus. That Yah- the, the Messiah that Yahweh promised was Jesus. And they also recognized that um, when Jesus left, he sent the Holy Spirit. Um, and that the Holy Spirit is a part of that trinity. Okay? Some of you are getting nervous about where I'm going here. Don't worry. Um, Then we move to Paul and the Gentiles, who's still for sure 100% Jesus was our salvation. He was Messiah. Still 100%, the Holy Spirit is in us and with us and works, empowers us, right? But the difference here, I believe, that Paul proclaims Father God. Not instead of Yahweh, because he sees that they are the same, but he encourages us to see him as Father God. Okay? And then over here, Rome and the rest of the world, the ends of the earth, they have many gods. Um, Even as far as Um, just saying Caesar and government and things like that are sort of elevated, okay? Then we move on to how each of these believe that we should live our lives, all right? So the Jewish establishment says you live your life by following the law. That's how you live your life. Uh, The Jewish believers say that you follow the traditions of the law, and we have love for our brothers, okay? We move on to Paul, and he goes a little farther, and he says we love God, and we love others. I'm going to speed through this and trust that you're going to follow. Rome? How do we live? Live however you want. As long as you appease the gods and give Caesar what is Caesar's. Okay? Um, Next, how are we saved? Remember, we're trying to get a full picture of what the people of God were standing in during this time. So, how, how are we... How are we made right? Um, The Jewish law would say you're made right by keeping the law. The Jewish believers would say that you repent. So repentance and you obey. Now there are, there's some new information that they do, that they include in this, like you repent and are baptized and accept that Jesus was your salvation and all that. Um, But we can see by by the acts of Peter and some James and some of this stuff that they they also expect that you're going to continue to obey the law, okay? Next, um, Paul is saying that we are saved by the love 
of God the Father, by the grace offered us because of Jesus, we are saved in freedom, and we are saved by knowing our true identity. That is what brings us, works out our salvation. Next, what is their view of the law? The law for these guys is a way for them to um, seek and keep the favor of God, of Yahweh. It is also the way that they, well, they see this favor as their status and their, um, their superiority. The Jewish believers believe in the new law that includes Jesus as the Messiah, but they add keeping old traditions into how they um, <clears throat> are understanding the law. So they accept, I'll put Messiah here. They accept that all of the, the words of Yahweh about Messiah to be true. That was Jesus. And so all of that is true. But they're still keeping their old traditions and laws. Um, how does Paul view the law? Romans 6, 7, and 8. Okay? If you want to dig into this more. Thank you, Lord, for Romans 6, 7, and 8. Because I'm not going to be able to fully explain this here. Um, Jesus fulfilled the law, putting us back into relate, right relationship with God. So Jesus fulfilled the law. Now we have access to the Father's heart and because we love him and know him we obey him. The key to I'm going to keep going. Next, what does our relationship with God look like? Here, this is harsh, but basically we're controlling God. We have a covenant with you. We're going to keep our covenant, and you're going to keep your covenant. And we're going to stay nice and, nice and in control. We have this understanding, and the understanding stands. Okay? Um, the Jewish believers are understanding that he loves us, but there is a definite... belief that we need to earn that love by keeping the law. Paul is helping us see that 
our relationship with God looks like us receiving his love. The implication there is that we, we cannot earn it. It is offered to us and we receive it. These guys, what's their relationship with God at this moment? They don't have one. Oh, I skipped some of those guys. Over here, how are we saved? We don't need to be saved. Yeah, we don't need to be saved. And what was this one? Our view of the law. The law is for the Jews. And it really doesn't have anything to do with them. All right, we're almost, we're almost there. We're there. We're going to stop there. So there we have it. There's a picture of the people of God in the book of Acts. And if the book of Acts and scripture is a mirror, I'm trying to find myself there. And I wonder where you find yourself. I don't know about you, but I began to feel like, I feel like I've seen this movie before. I feel like this story is familiar. Have you ever watched a movie and been like, I know what's going to happen in this story, but I've never seen this movie before. Like, but I know how this works. And you start recognizing characters that have different names, but you're like, time out. Like, for instance, I'm going to read you this movie plot line. You tell me if you can figure out what it is. A conflicted young prince in exile, reeling from his father's untimely death, an evil, um, an evil uncle scheming for the throne, two childhood friends providing some much-needed comic relief amid all the implied sin and bloodshed. What is it? It's the Lion King. And it's Hamlet from Shakespeare. Same story. One with talking lions, one with dramatic dudes. It's the same story. Okay, so then there are others. Um, uh, oh, Brother, Where Art Thou? I, this is not a movie that everyone has seen, okay? And admittedly, I'm not really sure that I ever saw the whole thing. But I heard it was really good, and it is the story of the Odyssey, Homer's The Odyssey. It's a guy trying to get home, and he runs into peril after peril after peril. Same story. Different characters, same plot. I could go on. Do we need to talk about the different versions of Pride and Prejudice? <laughs> because I can get into that. Um, when I look at this, 
I get the feeling I've seen these characters before. And I know this plot line. Here's another story I want to share with you. And I wrote it out because I wanted to. So I'm going to read it to you. My friend Brian Jakubiak loved gardening and cooking. He was always bringing me fresh veggies from his garden and canned beans and homemade salsa and telling me how I could do this with zucchini and that with peppers and bringing the hottest jalapenos because he knew Dave loved them. I had always wanted to try canning, but I didn't have a garden and didn't have any of the supplies. And honestly, because knowing that I, um, knowing that I, oh, oh yeah, this is a really funny line and I messed it up, so I'm going to go back. I had always wanted to try canning, but I didn't have a garden and I didn't have any of the supplies. And honestly, besides knowing that I thought canning jars were adorable, I had no idea how to can anything. But one year, after receiving an abundance of tomatoes from a neighbor, I decided I wanted to try. So I asked Brian what I needed and how to do it. He gave me all his canning stuff and generally talked me through the process, yada, yada, yada. So the day arrived, I took all of my kids to school, I put on some music and I cleaned my kitchen, I took a picture for Instagram, and then I declared that I was going to be a canner. I was so excited, but I was also terrified because I had read blogs and heard stories of jars flying off at rock, like jar lids flying off at rocket speeds and glass shattering all over the kitchen and then jars not sealing and homemade salsa poisoning people. So I loved the idea of canning and I loved the idea of joining the ranks of those domestic purists who share their delicious and healthy, organic and beautiful culinary gifts with their neighbors. But maybe the process was too much, too risky, too easy to mess up and spoil everything. I remember lowering my first jars into the water and then calling Brian immediately and asking him again and again, how long do I leave them in the water? And all the while, I like crouched across my kitchen, <laughs> watching the pot shake as it boiled and hearing the jars rattle, waiting for one of them to, to explode and glass to fly into my cornea. Then it was time to take them out. Just let them rest, Brian had told me. And you'll know they're sealed when you hear them pop. So I took them out and I listened. And honestly, I was still scared that one of the tops might fly off and that a jar might spill, shatter and spill salsa all over the new flour sack towels I had bought to be efficiently pioneer woman. So I listened and I didn't hear anything. So I called Brian again. How long before I hear them pop? I asked him. I don't think they're popping. And his response was, not long, you'll know. I kept listening and I heard some suction sounds. Was that pops? I thought it'd be like a real pop. Then I heard some actually pop, yay! But I couldn't tell which ones they were. 
And what if some of them sealed and some of them didn't? How would I know which ones were delicious and which ones would kill someone? So I called Brian again, and he laughed at me. But being the good friend that he was, he reassured me that they were probably fine. If I had followed his instructions in the preparation and cooking processes, then he thought they should largely be sealed, even if I didn't hear a pop. But I thought the pop was important. I thought that's how we knew it was sealed, I asked him. Well, kind of look at the top and tug on it a little. Uh, if it seems like it's sealed, it probably is. But don't tug too soon, because some of them still might be sealing, and you don't want to tug it before it's sealed. And the jars might be hot, so be careful, because you don't want to burn yourself. I was about to throw in my flour sack towel. I just wanted to make some salsa. I just wanted to be in the club of canners and to know the joy and excitement I'd heard so much about. But when it came down to it, it was kind of all too much. The process felt confusing and scary, and in the end, all I had was a horribly messy kitchen and some mediocre salsa that I was too scared might make someone sick, so I only served it to my family. But if I'm honest, I really didn't understand what all the fuss was about. How did some people love this? I guessed it just wasn't for me. And I haven't tried again. Same story, different characters. I didn't know about canning. I didn't know anything about it, but I'd heard that some people love it. I've heard that it was great. I've heard that there was good news about canning. But I didn't understand all the steps. And I, all the rules and steps were confusing and cumbersome. And what if I failed? The stakes were high if I failed. So maybe I just won't be a canner. Because I know how this works. I didn't know. I didn't know what all the fuss was about. I was okay just buying my canned goods at the store and serving them to my family. I didn't understand what the fuss was all about. I'm going to be just fine. 
I realized that in the story of God's people, the characters are different, but the plot's still the same. What Paul saw today in Acts was that he was stuck in Jerusalem, and he knew he had to get to Rome. So he had to kind of give up on Jerusalem for the sake of Rome. What is the good news that we have for the ends of the earth? What I'm referring to is that plot line that is moving us through the story. That great commission that Jesus gave us and that he reiterated in Acts 1.8, you will have power when the Holy Spirit comes on you to go and give my good news to the people in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And the church of God was trying to keep him in Jerusalem. And at this point in the story, Paul says, I got to get out. You know what? Figure that out on your own. I am convinced that you understand that Jesus was the Messiah. And I'm going to entrust you to him. Because we've got different things to do. I think I've said that before up here. The plot is the same. We're stuck in Jerusalem. And Jerusalem is the four walls of our churches. But the law is important, you might say. The law is important. But if the law could save us and save the world, Jesus didn't have to die. And as a parent, I can tell you that I would not send my child to die if I didn't have to. So if the law could save us, if following the rules could save us, if doing everything right could save us, it would have. But it didn't because God so loved the world that he gave his son. The sacrifice of Jesus is so important and it does save us. Make no mistake about that. But that is not our freedom and that is not our good news. The good news for Judea and Samaria and the ends of the world is that God loved us so much that he sent his son into the world not to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. That is our good news, guys. When we continually invite people back into the law, we are taking them from slavery to sin to slavery to the law. That is not freedom. That is not freedom. That is not good news. It's important. It's important that we understand our need for him. It is understanding. It is important for us to understand our need for the shed blood of Jesus. But we live in resurrection power that broke the yoke of sin and the law. 
That is the good news to the rest of the world. And can I say to some of you this morning who have been stuck in Jerusalem, it's good news for you too. It's good news for me because I can't keep the law. I can't do it. But when I find the love of Father God for me, it is his kindness that leads me to repentance. It is his love overwhelming in me that makes me want to follow him and obey him. The good news is not that I'm a sinner saved by grace. The good news is that I don't have to sin anymore. I'm gonna say that again. The fact that Jesus died and rose again means that we are free not to sin. So we don't need the law because his love and his grace compels us. That is the good news. I am sorry I am yelling. I told you I needed to calm down. (sighs) Friends, it is good news. It's good news that I need to hear. Even though the story looks a lot the same, I don't want it to end the same. I love the surprise ending. I thought I knew where this was going, but wait. That surprise ending makes a good story, doesn't it? I'm going to invite the worship team back up. Could you guys move the whiteboard again for me? Thanks. Um, we're going to sing a song now. I um, High fives, Brad. High fives on teamwork this morning. God worked this out, and the song we're about to sing is deep and a true declaration. And as you're working this out, this could be a great way to start to see that different ending in the story right now. So I'm going to stand and sing, and I would invite you to join me.